As we continue our series on worldliness, we want to consider the topic of God-honoring music. God-honoring music. Most of us in our society live our lives according to what we might consider a constant soundtrack. Walk into most cafes or restaurants or shopping centers, even walk into some elevators, and you'll constantly hear music being played. And on top of this, if you walk around public venues, you'll often see dozens of individuals with earbuds in their ears. You're not quite sure what they're listening to, but they're going around their daily tasks, going about their daily tasks, I should say, with music constantly going through their ears. And we might pause to ask this question. Where does music come from? Who made it? How did it start? What's its original purpose? And what we find in the scripture is that God is the author of what we might consider music or song. Not only is he its author and its creator, but also something of great interest to us is apparently he takes immense pleasure in it. In the Old Testament, for instance, he commands David, the king, to schedule musicians and singers and those who can play skillfully on instruments in order for them to sing at the temple. The Psalms also regularly exhort us to sing a new song to the Lord. Jesus, you might remember, on the night before he was betrayed, what did he do with his disciples? Among other things, they sang hymns together. And as Christians, we're told in the New Testament to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Ephesians chapter 5. And in the Bible, we also see that music accompanies things such as war, work, funerals, love, and play. God created music, and he made it to be a wonderful gift to us. And he wants us to create music as well and to enjoy that gift. But not only do we find that music is something that's spoken of throughout the scriptures and that it has great pride of place for all of humanity throughout the centuries, but also we're told that when we die or when the Lord returns, music is not going to cease all of a sudden, but actually it's going to be present in eternity with God in heaven. The book of Revelation tells us that we will have the opportunity to sing praises to God. So music is something that has been a part of our existence here on the earth. And for the Christian, when we go to be with God, it will still be a part of our existence. So if music is a gift from God, and it has such a prominent place in the life of God's people, as we see throughout the scriptures and throughout church history, we might add, then how does that topic of music relate to worldliness? In order to answer that question, or that type of question, we should ask a couple other questions. First of all, how does the music I listen to, whatever that is, whatever genre, whatever background, whether I'm listening to it in the car, at home, or through my earbuds as I walk around the neighborhood, how does the music I listen to affect my thoughts and my behavior, my belief and my action? And secondly, are my musical choices consistent with God's original intention for why and how he created music. Our consideration this morning, of course, is only introductory. It can't be exhaustive. But it will be immediately applicable, and it will provide a grid for each and every Christian, if you don't already have one, for how you can evaluate music appropriately. And so first what we'll do is we'll consider three elements of music generally. So this is not necessarily Christian music we're talking about, just songs and music in general. Three elements of that. And then we will consider three qualities of God-honoring Christian music, specifically for Christians' personal or corporate worship. First, let's consider the three elements of music generally. 
Here are the three. Content, context, and culture. Content, context, and culture. We begin with content. That's probably the most obvious connection that we make with music is what it says. What are the lyrics of a given song? What does the Bible say about this consideration for Christians? Now, whether or not this music is expressly Christian or it's what we might call secular music, that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It just might mean it's not talking about something spiritual or something godly or something biblical necessarily. So whatever this secular music is, all the extra music that we might think of to give an easy mental category, the music we would sing outside of a church building, so to speak. How do we evaluate the content there according to the Bible? The Bible has much to say. Perhaps the best theme verse for our consideration is a verse in the book of Philippians. Chapter 4, verse 8. Here's what it says. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely. If there's any virtue or any excellence, if it's worthy of praise, think on or dwell on these things. If that's the type of application or the elements we should be looking for in music, the things that we should be meditating on and ruminating over, then certainly the lyrics of a given song would, would apply in this situation. They would fall under this category. We might almost say that music especially falls into this category. By the way, that, that verse is not just applied to music in the scriptures. It's a, a general set of principles for Christians. This should help us to evaluate what we say, what we think on, what we act upon. And it certainly applies to music, maybe especially to music, because we're aware that content, lyrics, through the medium of music, melodies, harmonies, and rhythms, those elements of music can often make the content, the lyrics, far more impactful for a given individual. It's far easier to remember something you hear in a song a couple times than it is just having someone say the same thing to you without musical accompaniment. And this biblical standard from Philippians 4.8, and there are other passages as well, it helps us to evaluate all of our words and our thoughts as it applies to mu music. And it instantly brings into question, we might say, much of what is considered popular music today. Let's just use that criteria. What's true, right, good, beautiful, pure, lovely, excellent, morally acceptable? according to God's standard. Let's apply that to all the music that's been created and performed in the last hundred years. How much of the music in our world for the last hundred years passes th that basic test from just one verse of scripture? 50%? If we're generous, maybe? Probably maybe more like 20 or 30%. It would be hard to give an exact figure. And yet what it automatically tells us is perhaps more than half of all the music created in the last hundred years does not meet that very basic biblical criteria for what we should be setting our minds and our hearts on. It causes us to dwell or to think about things or to desire things that are not in line with what God says. And this is particularly the case, or I want to particularly apply this to the case of the Christian. It's far too common, if we're not careful, for Christians to sing songs about Jesus and his death for our sin on a Sunday morning, let's say, and then to sing and listen to songs throughout the week that glorify that same sin that we just confessed on Sunday. We might sing a song like, my chains are gone, I've been set free. We've sung that here before, and it's perfectly appropriate to sing on a Sunday. And then we re might remain enslaved to the lyrics that promote sexual immorality, profanity, anger, godless pleasure, sensuality, 
and materialism throughout the week. And James chapter 3, verse 10 tells us quite clearly, Christians, you can't have both blessing, positive, and cursing, negative, coming out of the same source. That's a problem. It's a polluted well. So we have to be careful here. Also, we're told in the scripture in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we are to do all to the glory of God. And sin, of course, cannot be accomplished according to that standard. You can never sin for God's glory because sin, by definition, goes against God and his moral standard. So we could ask this question, can I sing this song, whatever it is, can I listen to this music, whatever it is, to the glory of God according to the standard of Philippians 4, 8? If you took nothing else away this morning except that one question and truly understand its impact and its meaning from those verses, can I sing this song to the glory of God according to Philippians 4, verse 8? You would go away immediately with a set of principles, a grid, a guideline to help you evaluate each and everything you listen to. You know, it's little wonder when a Christian... Uh, might eventually begin to act in immoral ways if they have been constantly listening in their life to a soundtrack, so to speak, that glamorizes rebellion and idolizes love based on physical attraction alone or something like it, as is common in our day and age. As one example, just one of many examples we could use, uh, many Christian men might use the excuse when they go work out at the gym when they listen to really upbeat songs with profanity-laced lyrics of an angry nature, and they would say, well, that upbeat music helps me to work out more rigorously. And that may be the case. And in fact, they've actually done studies that that can be a help when you're working out. However, for a Christian, that shouldn't be your primary consideration. Sin is still sin, even if it makes you work out better. What we do, even in the background of our lives, matters to God. And it ultimately does affect us. It affects our hearts and our mind. And we are told not to be conformed to the world, 1 John 2, 15 to 17. But not only is the content important, also the context. There's two elements to the context that I'm referring to here. One is the past context in which you originally heard a song, perhaps. And one is the current context. Let's take the past context. In the Old Testament, we read of a really interesting uh, set of experiences for the Jewish people where they were taken from the land of Israel, their promised land, because of their sin, they were sent into exile to Babylon for a set period of time. And they begin to bemoan their situation, and one of the things they say is curious and certainly applies to what we're thinking of this morning. They say, how can we sing the songs of God in a foreign land, Babylon? How can we sing songs about God, the covenant-keeping God, the God who gave us the land, when the original context for those songs is that land? But now we're in a different land. It's really hard to sing those same songs in the same way. Why? Because the original context has changed somewhat. I remember being deeply impacted as a teenager when I met an older Christian man, a godly man, who, interestingly, he struggled hearing whether at church or somewhere else, old gospel songs, old Christian songs of a particular era. Not because of the content, but I I asked him one time, and he told me, he said it's because when he was a younger man, before he became a Christian, he and his brothers would consistently go out and get drunk, sit on the back porch drunk, and sing those exact songs. So every time those songs were sung, or a song in that sort of a style from that period of history, because of his past context, even though now he'd been saved, now he no longer acted that way, he would no longer, he never 
touched another drop of alcohol for the last five decades, for that matter. But even though none of that was in place, it just it brought him back to that situation. And so he was wise to be wary. And so, too, for all Christians, we must be considerate. Perhaps there's a sort of trigger warning for the past context in which you heard that or the past context in which that song came about. There's also, secondly, the current environment or context in which we listen to music. There is a reason why individuals who listen to a certain type or genre of music, let's say, often tend to frequent the same sort of clubs or enact in the same sort of subculture. Why? Because th there's a cultural connection with certain types of music. That's just part of it. And that doesn't mean it's always wrong, but it does mean we need to consider, wait, this type of music, this styling of music, what is it connected to? What's the context or the environment it's connected to? Current music especially has a context out of which it's written and a contextual group to which it primarily appear, appeals, which is one of the reasons why uh, in every age, things that are very popular today, those things that are on the, the top 100 charts of today, in 20 years will largely be forgotten. Most of them, not all, but most. Because it was, it was meant for a particular time frame and it came out of a particular context in history. We should be aware of that, because the Bible tells us, among other passages, that we should be wise with who we have as our companions in life. The, the, the people, and in this case also the music, that you choose to be a part of the soundtrack of your life is going to cause an effect on your life, and we should be wise with who we choose or what we choose to accompany us. Furthermore, we're told in Colossians 3, although we don't have time to look at it in detail, that we are to set our affections on things above, have an eternal mindset. If we're Christians, we should be thinking about things not just in the time frame of our life here on earth, but we realize that there's a greater context at play as Christians because when our body dies and decays here, our soul will go to live with God and he will give us a new body and we will live with him for eternity. And so there has to be an eternal perspective for every aspect of the Christian life, not least of which is music. So we could ask this, song, this question about songs. Does this song cause me to wrongly emphasize or dwell on the here and now at the expense of eternity? Well, thirdly, music also reflects a culture, or it has a culture of its own. A culture, to remind us, is, a, is the set of collective values or emphases that a society has. It's the things that a, a society takes for granted or assumes. All culture, of course, is not worldly, although every single culture throughout history has had worldly or sinful elements. There are both positive and negative aspects to various cultures according to God's unchanging objective standard. But worldliness, as we have seen so far in our series on the subject, is the elements of culture, among others, that exalt the self in opposition to God. My way or the highway. I'm the autonomous standard of all conduct as a human being. Therefore, a Christian must ask, ask, uh, ask questions of our culture, of different aspects of our culture. We have to consider the positive and the negative aspects of our cultural context. What's being promoted in this particular song? Is it the positive element of the culture that agrees with God's standard on a given topic, or is it the negative? Many of the songs at the top of various charts today are filled with ungodly aspects of our current culture, stemming from the lives of those who sing and make the music. Rebellion, emotionalism, narcissism, love of pleasure, sexual immorality, all of these are emphasized 
in various songs, and even in whole genres or styles of music. And the Christian is told to reject such things because they are a pollution, they are harmful to us, and they do not please God. You know, just recently, my wife and I had the opportunity to enjoy a pleasant 90-minute Sydney boat ride in order to see the lights from the Vivid Light Festival. It was very enjoyable. And even though there are a lot of children on board, we come to find out right towards the end of the cruise, we went up on the top deck where they had a DJ playing some music and some people were dancing around. We wanted to get a better vantage point to see the lights. And yet, as we were looking at the lights, despite the fact that there were children as young as five or six years of age, the four to five songs that we were up there for, every single one was explicitly sexual in its content, encouraging promiscuity. Why on earth was that necessary? Well, the, the reality is it's not necessary, but it's a reflection of our culture and its values. And that stuff, even when it happens in the background, can impact us. This is a society in which we live, and so we must reject these sinful aspects of our culture and not subject ourselves to them as far as we can help it. But there's no way to give a list of appropriate or inappropriate songs. Or you can listen to this album, but not this one. Or this artist, but not this one. There's no way to do that. But what we can do is apply the principles of Scripture. Is this pure? Is this lovely? Is this good? Is it honorable? Is it pleasing to God? Philippians 4.8. We must ask these questions of music. Here are two further questions to help us. Does the music I listen to lead me to love the Savior more? Or cause me or cause my affections for Christ to diminish? Secondly, does my music lead me to value an eternal perspective? Or does it influence me and encourage me to adopt a mindset of this present evil sinful age, as Paul terms it in Galatians 1.4? Here are a few more applications for us, three in particular, before we go on to considering God-honoring Christian music. Here's what we can learn so far and how we can apply it. First of all, evaluate your, your current musical intake, the soundtrack of your life. Does it meet the criteria of Philippians 4.8 and other passages? If it doesn't, then by all means, delete it. Throw it away. You don't need to have that music around. You don't even need to have access to it. If it does not directly violate the criteria of Philippians 4.8, you're still not sort of off the hook in this sense. That there are more songs that have been written and performed in the history of the world than you or I could ever listen to, much less appreciate. And that means that there may be a set of songs out there, or a set of music out there, that's not necessarily violating this particular passage, but maybe it's also just not the best. After all, just because a song comes into existence or is new doesn't mean you and I need to listen to it. We need to, as Christians, be constantly evaluating what is best. In this case, what is best to be filling my mind and heart with through the vehicle of the God-given gift of music. Another application. Christian, if you're more passionate about attending a concert than about participation in church, then it's likely your musical preferences have become an idol in your life. It's wrongly warped your affections, your understanding of the gift of music and its original purpose, and also what's essential for the Christian life. doesn't mean you can't enjoy a concert, but if that's a far greater excitement and value to you than being with your brothers and sisters and singing God's praises, then something is woefully wrong. Another application. Take time to intentionally thank God for the gift of music. Whenever you listen to or sing along with a song that is pleasing to the Lord and meets this criteria, don't forget to thank Him. 
Because we're told in 1 Timothy 6 that it is God who gives us all things richly to enjoy. That is, all the blessings of God, all the, the created gifts he's given us, when they are in proper proportion to him, meeting biblical criteria, they should be offered with thanksgiving. He is both the creator and the gifter of these things, and we should acknowledge him for it. And if you can't properly thank him for a song because it's not pleasing to him, then of course you shouldn't be singing that song. So we've evaluated music in general by content, context, and culture. But now let's move to three elements of God-honoring Christian music. Three qualities of God-honoring Christian music. What are the core principles for evaluating songs we sing in worship, whether in private worship, but I'm going to be particularly emphasizing corporate worship, because there's a sense in which corporate worship of God through song should be the litmus test for what we sing in private worship to God in song, up to a point. So for these three God-honoring qualities of Christian music, Colossians 3.16 is going to be our key verse. Because of time, of course, we're not doing a whole survey of everything the Bible says on music. There's just no time for that. So that's why I picked one key verse for each category. But please understand that these are not unique or one-off verses. There are multiple passages of Scripture in the Old and New Testament throughout multiple genres within Scripture that speak to God's priorities for music. But Colossians 3.16 says this, Pick out, if you can, God's purpose for worship music in the church through this verse. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, notice he, he doesn't give just one type of, of sort of what we might call Christian music. He uses these overlapping terms to show the richness and the variety of Christian music. And what does he say about those types of Christian music and the worship of God through song in the corporate gathering of Christians and in our own personal lives? He says that there are two primary purposes. One is to teach, and the other is to admonish. To teach means to properly instruct in true biblical truth. And to admonish is a word we don't use all that much anymore, but it's a type of warning or advising. So we're supposed to positively teach what's true, through Christian music, and we're also supposed to warn or advise through Christian music. Who are we supposed to teach, and who are we supposed to admonish? It's not who we might naturally think. Our natural inclination would be to say, ourselves. That's not what the pa passage says. Ephesians 5 has a similar passage, and it too does not emphasize you and I personally. Rather, it says we are to teach and admonish one another. The primary goal of corporate worship and singing in the church is to teach and admonish one another. And certainly when we're doing that, we're also learning and being instructed ourselves. But it's not first and foremost about me or what I like. Since Christian songs are to teach and admonish, they should be, here are the three qualities, accurate, appropriate, and accessible. Accurate, appropriate, and accessible. Let's first consider accuracy. we would ask this question, is this song, whatever it is, is it faithful to God's word and sound theologically? The concepts we sing through lyrics in Christian songs must be teaching proper biblical truths in a proper biblical way. 
We're told in the scriptures uh, on the topic of preaching and teaching. How, how should we go about preaching and teaching and leading Bible studies? One passage, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, says this. When you're hearing someone else preach and teach the word of God, when you're in a Bible study listening to that person lead the Bible study, you're doing one-on-one -on -one Bible study, whatever it is, here's how you should go about that, or here's your mental focus. Examine everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from all forms of evil. When it says examine everything, it means examine or evaluate and pass judgment on the content of what is being taught. You need to have spiritual discernment and not just say, oh, well, the preacher said it, so therefore it has to be true. No, that's not necessarily the case. The preacher needs to be showing you, or the Bible study leader needs to be showing you, that person who's discipling you needs to be showing you, this is not what I say, it's not what I think, it's not what I want. This, thus saith the Lord, this is what God says. You need to be examining it, not just imbibing it. And that leads to this question. Does this song, when we apply this to singing, because singing is teaching, we're told in Scripture, did this song cause my heart and the heart of my brothers and sisters in Christ to know and understand truth? better and then respond to it according to God's standard. This leads to a principle that right singing about God should produce right affections or love and appreciation for God. And you cannot do this if you're, what you're singing is not true about God. If a song moves your heart and soul to a conclusion about God that is evil or sinful, then the song is evil or sinful. This can lead to three questions to consider its accuracy. First of all, does it use biblical language accurately or acceptably? Or does it distort something that the Bible says? Because just because you use a phrase from the Bible, of course, doesn't mean that you're understanding what that phrase means or that you're using it in context. By the way, for each of these three questions, I'm going to use an older hymn on purpose and apply it to that hymn to see where it comes out. We don't have time to look at uh, several examples of each of these, but just kind of follow with what I'm doing and where I'm going with this. First of all, does it use biblical language acceptably? There's a great Christian hymn that we've sung before, I Will Glory in My Redeemer. And one of the lines of that song that you might be familiar with is the idea that Jesus waits for me at gates of gold. It's a very curious phrase, especially because if you read the Bible, that's exactly what the Bible does not say. Jesus does. It says the gates in heaven are made of precious stones. The streets are made of gold. Now, it's not a huge deal. I'm sure the songwriter was not trying to teach something terrible. I'm sure. And yet, through a simple change of the words, we could, say, we could sing it this way. Who waits for me on streets of gold? Okay, that makes it biblically accurate. All right, now that's something small. I'm purposely using something small just to illustrate the point. But far more Christian songs have far worse issues in them. They're not using biblical language acceptably. A second question, is it sound doctrinally? Does this match up with Christian teaching? There's a wonderful Christian hymn, one of my favorites by Charles Wesley, one of my favorite Christian hymn writers, and a preacher and a theologian in his own right. And can it be? Wonderful hymn. In, in one line of that hymn, he says that Jesus emptied himself of all but love, and came and bled for Adam's helpless race. Now what he's thinking about there is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, a wonderful passage. The problem is, in that passage, it makes quite clear 
that Jesus emptied himself of certain things, but not of other things. One of the things he did not empty himself of was his divinity. He was still fully God when he was here on this earth. And yet the phrase, he emptied himself of all but love, suggests that that's the only thing he left or he kept. So it's not quite accurate. Charles Wesley was a wonderful theologian. I'm sure he was not trying to teach something wrong. He was trying to be poetic. That's wonderful. And so, again, we could change that quite simply to something like, he humbled himself and came in love. But he didn't empty himself of all but love. That's a contradiction of Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 11. So once again, that would be an illustration of something that's not sound doctrinally. Or thirdly, does it communicate well? There's a wonderful hymn, Come Thou Fount. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. That's about the only time you'll ever hear me sing, by the way, um, at least individually. A lovely song. But one of the, one of the uh, verses says this, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thine help I'm come. I wonder if I asked for a sign of hands, who would have the foggiest clue what is being talked about in that phrase? Now, the sad thing is that that, that phrase is, is usually just goes completely over people's heads if they sing it at all that, with that hymn, and they have no idea what it's talking about, even though it's, it has a rich biblical context from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. But short of giving an hour-long sermon or lecture on exactly all the meaning behind that, it's probably best to switch it up. And, and Ebenezer was a name for an altar that the Old Testament people made after God delivered them and showed great victory in their lives. And so it was a commemoration of God's victory on their behalf. So you could easily change that line to something like, here I raise my sign of victory, or something like that, to make it a little bit more accessible, a little bit better communication. Or another one is, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Now, that, that's a beautiful poetic picture of some wonderful Christian doctrine, and yet it's kind of gross to most people today. Wait, there's a pool of blood from Jesus? That's, what is going on here? What are you singing about? Now, you could either explain what we're talking about. We're talking about how Jesus had to shed his blood and die for our sins. That's what we're talking about. Or you could change up that line, perhaps. What we're doing here is we're not trying to say we need to be overly critical. That's not what we want to go for. But we do need to be careful about the lyrics we sing as Christians, not overly critical or overly evaluating in such a way that we damage the joy that we should be singing with. Is it accurate? Secondly, is it appropriate? Appropriate for what? For worship, whether privately or corporately. Some songs might be good, appropriate in certain contexts, or even allowable, but they're not appropriate for the worship of God's people in God's house. A couple examples come to mind, uh, especially for any families with young children. Veggie Tales and or uh, some of Colin Buchanan's stuff. It might be appropriate for home, uh, sort of quasi-scriptural, spiritual songs that are really fun for kids to sing, but it's not really appropriate for the gathered group of believers to be singing in church, necessarily. It's not to say it's wrong, necessarily, but it's just not the appropriate context for it. And we might need to ask questions like this. Is this what I'm singing and what we're singing as a church? Is it consistent with God's character and what the Bible says about who he is and how he should be approached? This is a huge, huge and extremely important principle that is mostly ignored in much of modern Christian worship. Is it consistent with God's character and what the Bible says about how he should be approached? Because you remember there's an Old Testament example here of priests in the Old Testament who bring incense before God. 
They went to the right place, the temple. They did it with the right words. They wore the right clothing. They had the right pedigree. But they brought what the Bible refers to as a foreign substance to burn before God. They directly and knowingly disobeyed what he said to do. And they came into his presence thinking that they could do it by their standard, not his. And he killed them instantly. And he was right to do so. They knew what they were doing, and it was a front to Almighty God. Because what they were doing is saying, God, you're not that holy. You're not that great. We can determine how you should be worshipped. Now, thankfully, God doesn't uh, just strike each and every one of us dead when our hearts are not in tune with him or when we come with inappropriate forms of worship. I'm thankful that he's gracious to us. And yet, sometimes that means that we become lazy. And we don't think very much about who he is. Consider Isaiah 6, that he is the thrice holy God. The angels around the throne say he's holy, holy, holy. Or Hebrews 12, we are told that we are to approach him with reverence, deference, and awe. When we come to God, it's not supposed to be a party. Joyful, yes, but not the lighthearted joy of the modern world that takes nothing seriously. A light joke can bring a bit of joy. But that is a completely different category of joy to a young man standing at the front of a church watching as his bride walks down the aisle. Those are completely different categories of joy. We too need to understand that there are different categories at play here. Don't be caught up in the faddish sort of ways to worship God that our modern culture and sadly far too many Christians have imbibed. Fog machines, light shows, showmanship, None of that has a place in the church of God because it's not pleasing to God. It's sinful. There's something about the worship of the eternal God that should be timeless. It should be a little bit behind the times, perhaps. We shouldn't be singing in church the exact same sounding stuff in the exact same sounding way as what the culture is doing at a performance down the road. We shouldn't be following the culture. We should be worshiping Christ. And this applies to all, all types of Christian music. It applies to corporate Christian music, to what you're singing in private in your car at home. It applies to children's songs, too. I'm about to step on some people's feet. Sorry about that. Actually, I'm not sorry because it's true, but I never like stepping on people's feet. Uh, so for some of our families, let's take children's music for a moment. For some of our families, families with small children, Colin Buchanan has some, some good stuff. He also has some stuff that should probably never be sung by any Christian. When he sings songs about a rocky, rocky Jesus, or let's do the God rock, guys, how dare you? That's sacrilegious, profane, and sinful. Who do you think you are? Teaching children to approach God that way with absolutely no reverence, no awe, and no consideration of who he is. He is the judge of all the earth. He is the one who died for your sins, and that's how you're going to talk about him? Now, I use this children's song as an example, but frankly, this could be applied quite easily to corporate worship and private worship as well. If we had time, we could go through dozens of examples of what's sold at the modern Christian bookstore. That is appalling. Compare such disrespectful children's lyrics to that of another song, which speaks of the same passage of Scripture, but in an appropriate biblical way with a much greater appreciation and reverence for God. Something like, Jesus is the rock of my salvation. His banner over me is love. We should not capitulate to the lowest common denominator of the songs in our society 
and then call it worship. It's not. Christian parent, among others, if you feed your children on Christian songs that have little or no respect and reverence for God, then don't, don't be surprised if they grow up with little or no respect for God and his commands. They won't take him seriously. We should do this not only in our songs, but also in how we teach kids church, Sunday school, how we do family devotions at home, how we read through scripture with our children. Recently, our children were a part of a holiday club at a, what is considered by most to be a solid evangelical church in our area. And, and I'm, uh, from what I know about it, no doubt it is in many respects. And yet, on the night when they invited parents to come and hear a bit of a presentation on what the children had been learning and doing that week, which was a lovely gesture, they did a wonderful job of it, at one part of that uh, service or whatever you want to call it, presentation, uh, they, they introduced the next section this way. They said, okay, we're going we're gonna to show you and bring some of the kids up and show you how we taught them to dance and worship to Jesus. Now, we'll put aside for a moment whether that has any reality in Scripture, the dancing and worshiping Jesus in that way. But assuming it does for the sake of argument, I was then appalled as they invited the children up and they put on a song over the sound system which was explicitly sexual and a clear, sec uh, clear secular song that's well known in our society. No, that was not worship. That was sin. And they were teaching children to act in that way towards God. Why do we have such a low view of God that we think we can do that and then call it worship? It's a tragedy of modern evangelicalism. The Christian church's view of God is far too low and unbiblical, and it shows up in what we sing and how we sing it and what we allow to be sung in our churches and in our homes. May God forgive us for treating his name and his person with such contempt. Sadly, much of what passes for worship today in the church is garbage, and it's sung in a garbage manner, with no consideration of who God is or what his word tells us. We must not fall into that trap, Christians. We should ask this question, is it God-centered and is it reverential? Is it respectful? Finally, and very briefly, is it accessible? Accessible, uh, let me just apply it this way. Is it within the congregation's capability to sing? If we're supposed to be singing to one another and teaching and admonishing one another, then there's a sense in which we need to be able to sing it, actually, as a congregation. Congregational worship should engage the entire congregation. We seek to do that here. We may not always get the balance just right, but we seek to sing things that are imminently singable, not in a high key that no one can reach except two people in the congregation, not in a way or in a styling where people can't follow along, in the present day, there's an oxymoron at play with many churches who publicly pride themselves on worship or being great at quote-unquote worship who actually have no musical worshiping happening whatsoever because it's all professionalism. The, the congregation can't follow, and the congregation in many cases isn't even encouraged to follow. The congregation doesn't have the training for that song, and they certainly don't have that particular voice quality to sing in that range, perhaps. That's not worship. That's just proud showmanship and has no place in the church of God. It's the exact opposite of what God commands the local church to be and to do when we worship God together through this wonderful gift he has given of song. So we ask these questions. Is it acceptable? Is it accurate? And is it accessible? In conclusion, have you considered the music that you listen to personally, that you listen to in the car, that you put through your earphones, and its effect on your life as a Christian? 
Even if you're not a Christian and you're here today, this would apply to you, at least the first part of what we talked about. Have you considered what you're listening to? Because that's, that makes an impact on you. Whether you fully understand its impact yet or not, it does make an impact on you. Have you considered its content, its context, and its culture in light of the passages such as Philippians 4.8? And by the way, I would uh, advise this once again. Passages such as Philippians 4.8 can be applied to every human being whether they claim to be a Christian or not. It's a set of wholesome, biblical, yes, but also just wholesome principles for what we should and should not engage in and let in our lives. Are we properly applying the criteria of Colossians 3 as Christians for our Christian music? Is our Christian life filled with wonderful songs, hymns, and spiritual songs that teach and admonish us in the way to follow Christ in a manner that honors him and teaches others to honor him and to know him? Oh, what a wonderful gift God has given to us in music. We can be so grateful for it. May we use it in the way he intended, in a God-honoring way, to teach and admonish one another. Because as we all know, in our Christian lives, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, there's nothing quite like a great Christian song, whether that be a bit of scripture put to music, a hymn or a, a praise song we sing here at church, or one that you know from somewhere else. There's nothing quite like a good Christian song in certain circumstances of life. And it, it, gets, it gets linked into your mind. and it, it just kind of breaks out. It comes into your mind. Some of you are scared to sing in public or in your car even. Uh, but maybe you don't voice it out loud. But it, it comes to your mind and it reminds you of those wonderful truths of Scripture. Don't undervalue that. But rather treasure it. Thank God for it. And let us use biblical criteria to apply to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of music. With the psalmist and the rest of Scripture, we say, Great are you, God, and greatly to be praised. May we praise you through instruments for those of us who have learned them, through songs and lyrics that are appropriate, that are accurate, and that teach us the truth. May we not follow the world's way of thinking and acting on these things, but to follow your way, for we want to be pleasing in your sight. Please help us not to do that with a judgmental attitude. Our goal here is not to judge what other people are listening to. Rather, our goal is to be pleasing to you ourselves. So help us, we pray, by your Spirit's power. In Christ's name, amen.